Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure that you knew that Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections has now been added to the Christian Heritage Series, with an introduction from Joe Rigney. Due to the shallowness of much modern Christian worship and life, we can often think of the display of intense religious emotions as a hypocritical outward show. And we are right to be suspicious, since the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9. Nevertheless, emotions are a gift from God, and are a part of what God redeems. When the First Great Awakening was breaking out in New England in the 1700s, Pastor Jonathan Edwards approved of it and prayed for great revival. However, as a man who suffered from depression and melancholy, Edwards also warned people of the dangers of relying alone on such intense emotions. The center of the Christian religion is not our emotions, but Christ and His goodness. This classic will inspire you to consider both your life and your emotions and to follow Christ in love. Get Religious Affections today by Jonathan Edwards with a fantastic intro from Joe Rigney at canonpress.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 134. 134. Good to be with you. Uh, thanks for bearing with us. And they took, uh, took a little break over spring break. And boy, what a lot has happened over the last few weeks. So uh, there's no way for us to um, be doing this podcast without talking about what everybody's talking about, which is the uh, COVID-19 outbreak and the COVID-19 stationary modified panic shutdown, lockdown. So if you've got two threats going, and one threat being the virus and the fact that people are dying from the virus and it's very serious and, and uh, a lot of people are infected all over the world and, and uh, scores of people have died in the United States so far, there's, you can't just wave it off and say that's immaterial. Um, but we are talking about large populations. We're talking about millions and billions of people that a small fraction of whom are infected and a small fraction of those um, develop a very serious case and, and a fraction of those folks succumb, the fraction of those people die. That's a very serious thing. And of course, it's a tragedy for uh, the families involved. But the thing to keep in mind is that oftentimes, and this happens in flu season, also when the flu comes through, when there's a, um, a particularly bad flu season, uh, what happens is someone gets the flu, and if they've got, uh, if they're elderly with uh, underlying uh, conditions, if they've got other things going on, oftentimes the uh, death is just attributed to the flu. And the same thing's happening here. The, the death is attributed to the, um, the COVID-19 virus, even though, uh, for example, in Italy, which is the epicenter now, the, Italy is now the country hardest hit. Uh, with this virus, uh, the the people who are affected by it most are the elderly. I mean, the uh, um, the population of Italy is the second oldest population in the world. Um, like a quarter of their 
population is over the age of 65, and the average age of their uh, COVID patients, I think, is 67, something like that. And overwhelmingly, the, the overwhelming majority of people who, uh, who have died from the virus in Italy had other underlying conditions, other factors, other complicating factors. So that's a very real, that, that's a reality. That's a very real threat. It's a monster threat. But I would argue that it's, um, it pales in comparison to the threat posed by the reaction to it. So um, we, we haven't really thought this through. When, when you consider that the, uh, I think it's now the government of Illinois and the government of Pennsylvania and the government of California, they've basically gone into um, lockdown. Um, did anybody sit down and calculate what that was going to cost in human terms, right? Did anybody run the numbers? Um, shutting down, down the restaurants in California alone is going to involve billions of dollars a week. Billions of dollars a week. That, and that's billions of dollars of lost revenue. That's lots of people getting laid off. That's lots of people losing their jobs. And it's quite possible that if you, um, uh, if you persist in this, if you chase after this, and you say, no, we, we've got to kill the virus, you, this is a classic example, or quite possibly a classic example, of cutting off your nose to spite your face, or burning down the house to get rid of the termites, or um, uh, capsizing the ferry because everybody stampeded over to the port side because on the starboard side, somebody developed a cough. Uh, well, you're not going to die of whatever disease that guy had. Now you're going to die of drowning. Has anybody run the numbers on how many suicides there are when businesses fail? Right? Does anybody, has anybody run the numbers of what happens? What, what happens to people? What do people do when their life savings are wiped out? What, how, how do people respond to this? And you, ha you just basically have to know people. You have to understand how people work. So the thing that is, is, you, is if you analyze this, if you, if you look at what's going on, uh, you have to see, uh, and you say, okay, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a virus denier. I think that the virus is a very serious thing. I think you, we ought to take all the normal precautions. I think we ought to wash our hands and stay calm. I, I'm, not, um, I'm not thumbing my nose at the virus. I don't. I don't think people ought to go out there and and lick banisters, right? I I think that we ought not to be tempting fate. I think the virus is a very serious thing. That's one thing, but I think that our reaction to it, the panic responding to it, uh, without any clear direction, is a far more serious thing. It's a far more serious thing. And here's how it works. Thomas Sowell said uh, somewhere that. It's a really bad way of running the show when you let people make decisions who pay absolutely no penalty for making bad ones. So if people running the show are making decisions and they don't pay a penalty for bad decisions, um, you're, you're going to get more bad decisions. And what happens is this. This is the way the logic of leadership works. If you're the owner of a restaurant, and uh, there's an outbreak of some sort of uh, disease, and you don't shut, or let's say you're the mayor of a town, and you don't shut the restaurants down, and somebody gets sick, 
in one of the restaurants and dies because of they were eating in close proximity to other people. If that's the case, then that the responsibility for that bad decision, because the bad decision being you not shutting the restaurants down, is going to be laid right at your feet. Okay? Everybody's going to be able to identify where that problem arose. It arose with you. You didn't shut the restaurants down. But if you shut all the restaurants down, you can be virtuous. You can cover yourself in glory. And having covered, covered yourself in glory, you can absolutely demolish the lives of all the people involved, and nobody's ever going to ask you about it. You, you're not going to be held responsible at all for the uh, life savings of the, of, the, of the people who lost their livelihood. Or the, you, it's just not going to happen that way. So uh, I think that our decision-making mechanisms are skewed. I think that we are trying to run our evaluation of what we should do to this threat uh, as though it were a, a matter to be conducted by public opinion polls. I think that's not wise. So we come down to hamartiology, our section on hamartiology. The next three installments of our hamartiology study are going to all be related words, related to that which is unseemly or shameful. So the first instance is askemeneo, a verb that is found twice in 1 Corinthians. It refers to doing what is not done. All right, put not done in quotation marks. It refers to doing what is, quote-unquote, not done. The first passage where it is found is a difficult passage. Most translations alternate between taking it as being about a father, delaying the giving of his daughter in marriage, and the other, uh, other interpretation is about a betrothed couple putting marriage off. But in the former case, the scenario seems creepy um, because Paul says if they, they, the they being father and daughter, if they uh, can contain themselves, what is that? Yeah, that's creepy. And in the latter, it seems like bad advice for an engaged couple to put off marriage if you can handle it. If you can handle the temptation, stay, in, stay engaged indefinitely. That doesn't seem to be the apostolic um, uh, wisdom that we're accustomed to. I, I treat this in greater detail in my commentary on 1 Corinthians, a commentary called Partakers of Grace, which I encourage you to check out at Canon Press. But if you want a summary, a summary of the view I take on this, you can read it in the translation provided by the New English uh, Bible. So that's in First um, um, uh, Corinthians seven thirty six. So here it is. In any case, the word, ref- however you take it, the word refers to behavior that is disreputable or shameful, and in this case, towards someone who's close to him. First uh, Corinthians seven thirty six says, "But if any man thinks that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will; he sinneth not." Let them marry. Okay? So, our main interest here in hamartiology is that which is unseemly, that which is uncomely. Whoever it is, um, uh, is, is this uh, a father um, who's delaying giving his daughter in marriage? Is this a betrothed fiancé um, not being able to handle a long, long engagement? Or is this uh, someone who is behaving unseemly? toward his partner in celibacy, as the New England Bible has it. 
And this is something that love does not want to do. Love does not want to be uncomely or unseemly, as we see later in 1 Corinthians in the famous chapter on love. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. This is something love does not want to do. Doth not behave itself unseemly. There we go, Oscar Maneo. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. My book review for podcast episode 134 is a book called, um, oh, (laughs) I didn't write the full title down. Uh, It's, was America's, uh, did America have a Christian founding? Something like that. Written by a gent named Hall. Did America have a Christian founding or is America, oh golly, that's bad. I'm reviewing a book and I don't remember the name. It has America, Christian, founding, and uh, a question mark in it. Did America have a Christian founding? Uh, this is a fantastic uh, book. It's, it's right up there. Um, I, would, uh, I, I recommend it highly for anybody who has been involved in uh, discussions with um, uh, relatives or folks uh, across the backyard fence or uh, unbelievers in the neighborhood or even people at church, um, people who say, yeah, we're Christians, but we all know that America was a, a secular experiment at the beginning. And the, and the answer is a, a resounding, no, it was not. Um, there, America was decidedly Christian in its founding. And what Hall does, uh, and I've seen this sort of thing done in other places, but Hall is a respected scholar, and he really, uh, really uh, a respected scholar, and he really shows his work, and he produces quotation after quotation after quotation from letters and published pieces from different founders indicating how they thought of the American establishment as being Christian. Now, it was, but you, this, this requires explanation because uh, we have lost sight of another aspect of the founding, which is federalism. Um, when, when, the, um, when the First Amendment uh, was passed, um, and it was, well, let's put it this way. The Constitution was passed, put before the states. A number of states wouldn't ratify it unless there were some amendments. And those amendments uh, came to be known as the Bill of Rights. The first of them said that Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of a religion. Now, what that notice, notice how that is phrased. Congress shall make no law. The only entity in this world that is capable of violating the First Amendment is Congress. Congress shall not make a law concerning the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So Congress violates the First Amendment if they established a church of these United States, like Denmark had a church of Denmark, and England had a church of England, and Norway had a church of Norway. Uh, The founders did not want a church of the United States, and they adamantly did not want that. But at the time of the founding, nine of the 13 colonies had established state churches at the state level. So the, the states that ratified the Constitution, the majority, I think, I think it required nine states to ratify in order to uh, take effect. And that same number of states had 
um, state tax-supported uh, denominations. The uh, state of Connecticut didn't get uh, didn't get rid of their establishment until the 1830s. Uh, there, it was the um, Congregational Church. So in the 1830s, decades after the uh, Constitution was adopted, there were states uh, states that had come into the Union that way that had established tax-supported denominations that were the official denomination of that state. Now, you might think, as I do, that that's a bad idea. I, I'm not an establishmentarian. I don't think established state churches receiving tax monies is a good idea. I'm against it as a matter of policy, but I'm not against it because it would be unconstitutional. It would not be unconstitutional for Idaho to make the Presbyterian Church the official um, church of the state. It's not unconstitutional. The people that ratified the Constitution, most of them were doing it at the moment they ratified it. So um, now, why, why did the founders not want uh, a, a church of the United States? They didn't want a church of the United States because uh, if you have a state bird, Oriole for Maryland, uh, and a national bird, the bald eagle, that's not going to be the source of any kind of conflict. If you have a state flower um, and then a national flower or a state anthem and then a national anthem, that's not going to be a source of conflict. Uh, it quite possibly will be a source of conflict if the national denomination was Episcopalian and the state denomination was Presbyterian. You're just asking for trouble. And so what happened was the founders said, we want Congress to do two things. We want Congress to not establish a church in the United States. Good, good idea. That's good, good by me. Because that would bring her into conflict with different parties to the covenant that brought us together as a nation. Um, and they didn't want to do that. And also, Congress shall not interfere with the free exercise thereof which they feel free to do all the time these days. So bring us back, bringing us back to the book, this, this book is an easy read. Uh, there are, uh, it's jam-packed with valuable citations of, uh, from the founders showing that how judicious and thoughtful and how Christian they overwhelmingly were.